how English reads in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, in the Greek text, there is no definite article before Joseph's name, like there is for every other person, every other father in the genealogy of chapter 3. Now, the definite article is just simply the English word, the. There's no the in the Greek text before Joseph's name. There is one in the English, but not in the Greek. Now, that's important. The idea is that while it was supposed that Jesus was Joseph's son, the reality is that his bloodline comes from Heli. Now, who is Heli? Well, one early Jewish writing very clearly calls Mary the daughter of Heli. So, through either family line, Jesus has a legitimate claim to be the Messiah. And, of course, only the virgin birth allows that to happen. And hence, only Jesus could be the Messiah. So, today we move from a a a genealogical overview of history to a single moment in history, the Messiah's miraculous birth. The virgin birth, or better yet, the virgin conception of Jesus, has been a fundamental, non-negotiable truth since the beginning of the church. If we look at the early ecumenical creeds of the church in the first few centuries um, after Christ, uh, we see that affirmed. We see that in the Apostles' Creed. We see that in the Nicene Creed. We see that in the Chalcedonian Creed. But despite the clarity of this teaching in Scripture, despite its affirmation throughout church history, like so many other teachings of Scripture, in many spheres it is jettisoned as being of no real importance and not, of, not even of reality itself. And underlying that is a denial of the miraculous. See, if we live in a world where the miraculous does not occur, then of course we cannot live in a world where a virgin can conceive a child without the necessary male contribution. I've sat there in meetings in previous churches where elders of a church were asked straight up whether they believed in the virgin birth. And one's response was, well, I've got no reason to deny it. And by that he meant, I can't disprove it, but I'm open to that. And wouldn't have a problem if it was disproved. That same man denied the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, as well as the bodily resurrection of Christ, so it wasn't surprising that the virgin birth was also not for grabs. But if the virgin birth could be disproved, then friends, we have nothing to stand on. Absolutely nothing. It's often claimed that we should not make such a big deal of the virgin birth because it's not explicitly mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament other than in Matthew and Luke. But that's not actually an argument because where it is mentioned, it provides a fundamental explanation of everything else that is spoken of regarding Jesus in the Scriptures. With all that in mind, let's read through our text today. Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25, says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The title for today's sermon is The Messiah's Miraculous Birth. And I want us to observe four things this morning. First thing, I want us to see... I want us to see that the Messiah's miraculous birth began with an awkward dilemma. An awkward dilemma for both Mary and Joseph, but as I said, Matthew tells things from the perspective of Joseph. Joseph, a just man, a righteous man, discovers that his fiancée is pregnant, and being a just man, a righteous man, it was not as a result of him sleeping with her before they were married. Bible is unambiguously clear that sex before marriage is now and always has been sinful behaviour. There's no way around that. And Joseph, being a man devoted to God, had not crossed that line with his fiancée. The only possible conclusion he could reach then was that she had been unfaithful to him and had been intimate with another man. You see, Joseph, at this point, he was not to the information that we read in verse 18. He was not aware of the fact that Mary's pregnancy was the result of the Holy Spirit's miraculous work. And again, that shows the distinction between Matthew and Luke in their presentations of the nativity. Luke focuses on the event from Mary's perspective, whereas Matthew focuses on things from Joseph's perspective. And so all of the details of what happened until Joseph's discovery are missing in Matthew's gospel. And why should they be there? Because Joseph had no idea what had been going on up until this point. But for the benefit of our understanding, let's just delve into the events that led to this point. So verse 18 reads this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they, became, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So the first thing Matthew does here is to continue distancing Jesus from the paternity of Joseph. Joseph is betrothed to Mary, but it's Mary who is the mother of Jesus. It's also important to understand here uh, the concept of betrothal. So let me just give you a quick outline of a Jewish wedding ceremony and the procedure that happened for that. And this will be helpful to appreciate the situation that Joseph was faced with. So, step one of a Jewish marriage was the establishment of a marriage covenant. 
This was a legally binding agreement, and as such, to, to call off a betrothal meant that a divorce was necessary. A betrothed couple could be referred to as husband and wife, even though they did not consummate the relationship with sexual intimacy until the wedding itself. So this was a far more formal union than our modern-day concept of engagement. Included in the marriage covenant was the bride price, a, a gift from the family of the groom to the family of the bride, and it was a compensation to the bride's parents for the cost of raising uh, the bride. But it also served as a sign of the groom's love for his bride. It cost the groom to gain his wife. She was bought at a price. Now, step two was the, the preparation of the bridal chamber and the bride. After the marriage covenant was established, the groom would go back to his family's home and, and prepare a bridal chamber. And it usually involved uh, building a room connected to his father's house. And he had to get his father's approval before the place could be declared ready. And at the same time as the groom was preparing the bridal chamber, the, the bride would be busy getting herself prepared for the wedding day. And step three was the wedding. Once the bridal chamber was complete and at a time determined by the father, the groom would go and collect his bride. And it could happen at any time, so the bride had to be ready. It was customary then for the, the bride to keep a lamp and all her wedding apparel by her bedside, just in case the groom came at night. As the groom and his attendants uh, approached the bride's house, uh, he would blow a shofar, a trumpet, to announce his arrival. The wedding party would then return to the groom's house where there was a wedding ceremony. And after this formal ceremony, the marriage was, was consummated in the privacy of the bridal chamber, and then this was followed by the celebration of the marriage feast, the great party. And there are more details we could go into, but that should be enough to give you a clear picture. And if that was the first time you've heard about what happens at a Jewish wedding, there might be many lights suddenly clicking on as you realize just how many connections there are in passages of Scripture to this wonderful event of a wedding. Just for instance, one, we might think of Jesus' declaration in John chapter 14. Verses 2 and 3 said this to his disciples. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now doesn't that make a whole lot more sense when you understand the structure of a Jewish wedding? But for our purposes this morning, I hope it also helps you to see the difficult situation that Joseph finds himself in. He was betrothed to Mary, which meant that a marriage covenant had already been established. It meant that he and his family had also already paid the bride price. And so what's Joseph busy doing at this moment? He's busy getting the bridal chamber ready for his bride. He's working hard. And he's working hard with the assumption that Mary is also busy getting herself ready for the time that Joseph would come and collect her. So imagine his surprise when he finds out that Mary is pregnant. Now Matthew doesn't elaborate on how this happens, but Luke does. 
wider than that? Does it include all the Gentiles too? Remember, Jesus is not just the son of David. He's also the son of Abraham. To whom God promised all nations will be blessed through him. What the angel is referring to here is what is known theologically as limited or definite atonement. You may have also heard it spoken of as particular redemption. But you may not have heard of these terms at all. So let me just explain, explain the brief Jesus has not come to save all people. That is the concept of universalism. The Bible makes clear that not all people will be saved. Matthew 5.13, Jesus declared, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. That's not hard to understand, right? Not all people will be saved. Jesus has not come to save all people. But neither has Jesus come to simply provide a way of salvation for all people, such that all who believe will be saved. This is the concept of general atonement. Now, this view is far more in line with the Scriptures in that it rightly rejects the idea that that every person will end up in heaven, regardless of their beliefs. Those who hold to a, a general view of atonement affirm that Christ's sacrifice is only beneficial for those who trust in Christ. That's true. Yet this view is also lacking. You see, the angel did not say to Joseph that Jesus will provide opportunity for salvation, such that all who believe in him will be known as his people. Jesus did not come into this world simply with a desire to save people, wishing that people would listen to him, hoping that some would respond in faith. Now listen to what the angel declared. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is a definite atonement. There is nothing wishful here. It is definite. It is sure. It is certain. He will save. He's not come simply to offer salvation. He has come to save. And moreover, He's not hoping that some will respond. He has come to save his people. The atonement is limited in the sense that Christ has come to die for a definite group of people, for a particular group of people, for his people. Now, to be sure, Jesus' death was not lacking. It was the perfect sacrifice. His true humanity was sinless. And his true deity enabled the eternal punishment of of, of sin to be dealt with completely. After only a few hours on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. But when Jesus uttered these words, we know from what the angel declared that he had finished paying for the sins of his people, those whom the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had elected before the foundation of the world. So while it's true that the gospel is to be proclaimed to all people, regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of gender, the wonder of the gospel is that those who believe will know that Christ did not simply die for them in some general sense, but that when he was on the cross, he had them in mind. And what an incredible assurance this brings 
Christians, that we can, uh, we can know that when Christ came to save his people from his sins, he came to do that. And that for those who believe, we can know with certainty that our belief was made possible by the grace of God. Christ's death was for us. These glorious truths are, are brought out side by side later in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus declared God's sovereignty in verse 27. Listen to these words. Matthew 11 verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And that's pretty clear. Only those to whom the Son chooses to reveal are able to respond. And these are the ones whom the Son has come to save through his death and resurrection. Our sinful hearts are dead to God, so that without his gracious work, no one anywhere would ever respond out of their own means. Thanks be to God that he actively regenerates sinful hearts that they might respond in faith. But then listen to what Jesus says in the very next verse, verse 27. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The offer of the gospel is extended to all, and all those who respond will receive its blessings. So here we have divine sovereignty and human responsibility side by side. Only those whom God has chosen will believe, but the gospel is proclaimed to all such that all who believe will be saved. If people choose not to believe, it's a result of their own sin. If people choose to believe, it is a result of God's grace. We have nothing to boast of except the grace of God. If you're here today and have not trusted in Christ for salvation from your sins, then hear these words of the angel of Joseph and know that Christ Jesus is the one and only Saviour and that he has come to save his people from their sins. If you believe, you can have the assurance that your belief is not the working of your own intellect, your own wisdom, but that God's grace is at work in you to recognise his truth. Christ came to save you. So in the Messiah's miraculous birth, there is, secondly, this angelic dream, which tells us so much. Joseph has received his explanation, but Matthew is not done in explaining the meaning of this event. And so he continues for his readers and continues for us by showing that the Messiah's miraculous birth also fulfills an ancient declaration. Matthew says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And these are the words of the prophet Isaiah, uttered over 700 years earlier. They're found in Isaiah 7, verse 14. At the time, Ahaz, the king of Judah, was fearful that the kings of Israel and Syria would overthrow him. God sent Isaiah to encourage Ahaz that, that this would not happen. And to tell Ahaz to ask God for a sign to confirm what Isaiah was saying. But Ahaz refused to ask God for a sign. He was feigning piety because in reality he was trusting in human strength and thumbing his nose at God. 
Isaiah was rightly outraged, and he prophesied that Ahaz would receive a sign anyway. But instead of a sign of hope, it would also be a sign of judgment. And so Isaiah declared, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This was a judgment upon Ahaz. Because Isaiah had been told him that before this child was old enough to eat curds and honey, to say, my father or my mother, Ahaz's enemies would be defeated. And this is what happened. Three years later, the Assyrians uh, came in and defeated Ahaz's enemies. And that sounds like a good thing, right? Yes. But the Assyrians did not stop in the north, and they came down and attacked Judah as well. So who was this child? Well, the simplest explanation is found in the context of Isaiah 7 and 8. Where the virgin referred to seems to be Isaiah's second wife. His first wife, apparently having died sometime after the birth of his first child. At the time of the prophecy, they were not married, and she was a virgin. Once they were married, she conceived a child, Isaiah's second son. But, how can this child be called Emmanuel when Isaiah's second son is called Meashal Hash? We read that in Isaiah 8. Well, it seems that this was the name Isaiah gave the child as a sign of judgment. His name means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens, which is a, a reference to the coming destruction of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. But it is possible then that Isaiah's wife gave the child a different name, the name Emmanuel. And that's not without precedent in the Old Testament that a father names his child one thing, the mother names the child something else. So here we see judgment and hope. But it's not simply about judgment, it is also about hope. And it's clear from the following chapters of Isaiah that the prophecy of a child to be born was not fulfilled completely in Isaiah's son. The words describing the one who would be called Emmanuel show that he would be someone far, far greater than Isaiah's own son. For instance, in Isaiah 9, verse 6, we're told, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this is a prophecy that Matthew recognizes as being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is Mighty God. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah's time, the virgin who conceived was a virgin at the time of conceiving a child. But that child was conceived in the natural way. 700 years later, a virgin conceived that there was nothing natural about this. It was the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that brought life out of nothing. Now, so far throughout Matthew 1, we've seen the need for the virgin birth to ensure that Jesus could be born in the royal line of David, but through a physical line of David that avoided that curse of Jeconiah. But here we see something more about the virgin birth. It was necessary so that the child conceived was both truly man and yet at the same time truly God, God with us. In the virgin birth, God the Son, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, 
He took on human flesh, truly God and truly man. If Jesus were not truly man, then he could not be a a sacrificial substitute for the sins of his people. If he were not truly God, then he could not be the saviour. For only God is the saviour. Isaiah 43 verse 11 says, I am the Lord and besides me there is no saviour. Jesus' divine nature enabled his human nature to sustain the full weight of God's wrath at the cross. While his human nature was sinless, he could not endure the eternal punishment for sin by itself. Here's the mystery of the incarnation. It is a truth revealed to us. But it is hard for us to get our finite minds around this infinite wonder. Yet that's not a cause for worry. That's not a cause for us to discard this teaching because it's too lofty for us. It is a cause for worship, for ascribing glory to God for his saving work. There's one more aspect of the Messiah's miraculous birth, and we're going to finish quickly with that now. How did Joseph respond to all of this? Well, he responded with an ardent devotion, an eager, fervent commitment to the Lord. How did he respond? Well, he did exactly what the angel commanded him to do. And just know how quickly he followed through with the angel's command. When he woke up, there was no mucking around. There was no further contemplation. Remember, that's all he was doing prior to the angel's appearance. All he was doing was considering how he could divorce Mary quietly. But now it's a time for action. And so he took her as his wife. They got married. He clearly hadn't finished the bridal chamber because if he had, they would have been married already. But that doesn't matter, and in fact, it adds credence to the reality of a virgin birth. In fact, it states clearly the marriage was not consummated at all until after Jesus was born. That's why we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 5, that Mary and Joseph were only betrothed at the time they went to Bethlehem. Since the marriage had not been consummated at that point, they could still technically be considered betrothed. So there's no doubt that Jesus did not have a biological human father. After the birth of Jesus, however, Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin, as is currently taught by the Catholic Church. Matthew says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Until. That is, after the birth of Jesus, the marriage of Joseph and Mary was consummated, and the scriptures clearly teach that Joseph and Mary had other sons and daughters through the natural means. So Joseph faithfully took Mary to be his wife, and when the child was born, he obediently named him Jesus and took that child to care for as his own. Both Mary and Joseph are incredible examples of faithfulness. They trusted God and obediently followed we today are blessed that we live in a time when we have God's sufficient and trustworthy word as revealed to us in his written word. We have the Bible. We have God's word to us. And in his written word, he has revealed clearly the good news about Jesus Christ. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. Salvation is found in no one else. For no one else is both truly God and truly man. 
No one else is the perfect mediator between God and man. It was only Jesus who was born into this world through a virgin, a miracle, displaying the sovereign and undeniable touch of God, a miracle in which the eternal Son of God took on human flesh. For those who know Jesus as Saviour, we have an example of Joseph and of Mary, what it looks like to hear God's word and faithfully obey. We serve a God whose power is displayed mightily through the virgin birth. He's able to do such a thing, and he's able to do all that he promises in his word. For those who have yet to trust in Christ and hear the testimony of Scripture, see the impact that this had on Joseph and Mary, consider the ongoing testimony to this miracle throughout the history of the church. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Christ Jesus. Devote yourself to him. And find yourself as counted among those whom Jesus came to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you are so clear to us as to the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ his virgin birth, the nature of salvation. We thank you that it is by your grace alone that we are saved, that even for us to understand your word, the words on the page make sense to us. We need the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our sinful hearts, to regenerate us, to enable us to see the truth. We thank you that it is by grace we are saved and through faith in the one and only Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would enable us to give him glory and honour in all that we do. Thank you that Christ came to save his people from their sins. Thank you that it's by grace that we may be counted among those.